When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Pitbull. I think that education is the real revolution because as much as we speak about all the problems that there is in society and the world today, my mother's always told me, son, don't worry, the world's always been coming to an end. Don't let it scare you out of living. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The 27 Club is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. Ron Pigpen McKernan died at the age of 27, and he lived a life that was always meant to go off the tracks. I can give you 27 reasons why that statement is true. Two would be the number of times he narrowly avoided a possession rap for drugs. Drugs that he had absolutely no desire to use or even sell. Another four would be the number of years of savings Pig would lose when the dead got taken for a financial ride by a trusted member of their family. Eight more would be the number of tracks that appeared on the Grateful Dead's fourth studio album, Working Man's Dead, which turned away from psychedelia, though not directly back towards Pig's beloved blues. Another 11 would be the number of days Pigpen and the Grateful Dead would embark on a cross-country journey into the Canadian wilderness on a train ride that altered their perspective and their minds. And two would be the number of Englishmen who had the unpleasant task of letting an original band member go, a member who would die a month later and serve as a grim harbinger of what would await Pigpen and his good friend, all totaling 27. On this, episode seven of season five, Possession Raps, Money Blues, Riding That Train, and Ron Pigpen McKernan. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club.
I'd be careful if I were you. The voice outside the Grateful Dead's New Orleans hotel startled Ron Pigpen McKernan. He wasn't used to security guards handing out free advice. Pigpen felt like the rent-a-cop was staring into his soul. Be careful. Lots of crazy things happen around here. No shit, Sherlock. They were in New Orleans. Les Elebontons Roulet. The Big Easy's middle name was Crazy. It was January 31st, 1970. Pigpen and his bandmate, Tom Constantine, had just returned from a nearby shop where they had perused antique pistols. Pigpen narrowed his eyes at the guard. What was lots of crazy things happen around here supposed to mean? The security guard grinned, like he knew something Pigpen didn't know. Pigpen decided to brush it off, but couldn't help but feel like he was being watched. He and Tom walked inside the hotel. Pigpen scanned each person he saw. It was hard to tell if the scattered souls in the hotel lobby were undercover cops or just guests. The hotel in question was settled right in the heart of Bourbon Street, a large brick building with requisite iron porches wrapped around the facade, quintessential French quarter. Pigpen hoped the Grateful Dead weren't about to be quintessentially fucked. Although the ancient building felt foreign, the feeling Pig was getting on the inside was all too familiar. Pig and Tom ascended the stairs to find John McIntyre, the dead's tour manager, hanging out in an upstairs lobby smoking a cigarette. Pigpen recounted his odd interaction with the security guard, and Pig was sweating. He thought of the bust on the hate back in 67. He started to worry that, once again, he'd get locked up for something he didn't have any part in. Wouldn't that be just his luck? Especially since Tom, in addition to being the only band member besides Pigpen who regularly played keys, was also the only band member besides Pigpen who didn't regularly partake in illegal narcotics. John calmed him down, told him not to worry. Easier said than done. Pigpen couldn't shake the feeling that something was about to go down, and he was right. It was around an hour later when the commotion started. Pigpen sat up on his bed and stared at the door. He had heard various members of the dead's traveling circus pass by in the hallway, but Nothing that sounded like this. He looked over at Tom, who didn't seem to share Pigpen's elevated concerns. Muffled, raised voices were now coming from the other side of his door, and Pigpen began to sweat again. Fuck. Only weeks earlier, Jefferson Airplane were busted in the same hotel. Pigpen knew the other members of the dead's entourage were holding, and they were never not holding. A knock came at the door. Pigpen's blood ran cold, and this was it. It was over. No way he'd get off scot-free again. Another knock. Fuck, fuck, fuck. And the door swung open. Two narcotics agents entered. And they took a look at the odd couple stationed in the room. A sweaty goateed cowboy and a handlebar mustache gen who looked like he belonged pulling rabbits out of a hat somewhere. And the agents didn't say anything. They just started to search the room. And Pigpen watched them nervously. He knew they wouldn't find anything, but... He also knew that that didn't matter when it came to righteous cops and defiant hippies. He wondered how long his sentence would be. 15 years? 20? 25? The visions of a backwater Louisiana prison ran through Pigpen's head, stuck in the oppressive southern heat while carrying out community service for the next three decades. He never should have left Northern California. Just as Pig's mental state was unraveling, Tom, clear-minded and sober, began to casually talk up the agents. Tom discovered that, like him, the agents were ex-Air Force. And the mutual bond cut some of the tension in the air, but they continued their search nonetheless. And nothing. 
Pig and Tom were both clean. They would not be charged. Jesus, that was another close one. Pigpen felt a rush of relief. He walked out of his room, a new lease on life for some air and a smoke. The scene in the hallway was eerie. As Pigpen made his way to the end of the hallway, he passed the rooms of the rest of the Grateful Dead and their roadies and entourage. All the doors were thrown open and agents were in each room tearing through possessions, but Pigpen didn't see a familiar face in sight. When Pigpen emerged onto Bourbon Street, he found 19 members of their crew, including several bandmates, sitting on the sidewalk in handcuffs. And the press was already on the scene. Cameras clicked and bulbs flashed. And the papers would say that the band was caught with marijuana, LSD, barbiturates, and dangerous narcotics. The Grateful Dead, on the other hand, claimed it was nothing but some resin and prescriptions. Regardless, after being held for eight hours in a New Orleans jail, all 19 were released on bail. Aside from Augustus Owsley Stanley, a.k.a. Bear, they would all avoid any serious legal trouble. Bear's rap sheet had finally caught up to him, though. He was now looking at multiple years in prison, and the Grateful Dead would soon lose their sound man. But losing Bear wasn't the only thing troubling the dead after the New Orleans bust. The bail money used to spring the detainees depleted vital travel funds, leaving the group frightfully low on cash. Lenny Hart, Mickey Hart's father, who had become the dead's money manager a few months prior, managed to get the caravan released from their holding cells for 3,750 non-refundable dollars. It was more than the dead had made at their previous show. The band held a fundraiser at their show the following night, jamming with their opener, Fleetwood Mac, and collecting funds to retroactively pay their bail tab. In typical Grateful Dead fashion, they even invited their arresting officers. It's all good, man. But it wasn't all good. The dead had reached a new level of notoriety. They'd found all the terrible trappings of fame with seemingly none of the benefits. The traveling entity known as the Grateful Dead was becoming a financial fiasco. And they were pitiful at managing money. And they simply didn't understand the cost of business in the rock and roll world. The lack of a contingency plan in New Orleans was just more supporting evidence of that. Sure, they wanted to play more shows, launch bigger tours, buy better sound equipment. But all that cost money and required actual planning. The Grateful Dead were essentially clueless in that department. That's where Lenny Hart fit in. Lenny worked to make sure the dead weren't living hand-to-mouth anymore. Everyone was given a livable weekly stipend. Pigpen didn't have a clue what to do with the cash. He started leaving a bit to Lenny every week, stashing it away for the day the Grateful Dead's train inevitably ran off the tracks. Pigpen knew it was inevitable because it always seemed like whatever tracks they were riding were wobbly at best. And in the midst of their Roots Rock rebrand, the Grateful Dead decided it was time to shake up their lineup yet again. Just as they had done with Bob and Pig a few years prior, the band got together and decided to let Tom Constantine go. But unlike the reasoning they provided regarding Bob and Pig, Tom's departure was about style. He couldn't bring the energy to the stage that the band needed. He was too calculated, perhaps even too well-trained. Tom Constantine was axed for actually having his shit together. And the band wanted to start playing loose again, get back to the soul of the music they loved, rock and roll. They just didn't sound like a rock and roll band with Tom on keys. Tom didn't sweat it. He had already been asked to arrange music for an off-Broadway show called Tarot. And the two parties split amicably. Although Tom had originally been brought in to replace Pig, the two had grown close. 
pig's warm, endearing demeanor had won Tom over, and they formed a strong kinship despite being worlds apart musically. Pigpen even served as Tom's best man at his wedding. But there was no time to dwell on Tom's departure. Pigpen was needed to step back behind the keyboard and reclaim a piece of his original duties in the band, for now. The crowd at the Fillmore East let out an emphatic round of applause. The Grateful Dead had just gracefully delivered the uncharacteristically mellow Candyman, one of their latest compositions. Fans were still getting used to this new version of the Dead, but they were digging it. Jerry leaned into the microphone and told the crowd they were going to end the night with a gospel tune. Pigpen narrowed his eyes. His confidence, which had returned in full force since the departure of Tom Constantine, coursed through his veins. And Pigpen leaned into his mic and told Jerry to skip it. Jerry tried to laugh it off, but the crowd was on Pigpen's side. Yeah, play the blues, man. And Jerry looked back at Pigpen and grinned and then turned to the crowd. You want to hear Pigpen? The crowd gave a holler. And Jerry asked again, and they got louder. And he asked a third time, and the Fillmore shook. Pigpen grinned, polished off his can of beer and stepped to the mic with an acoustic guitar to give the crowd what they wanted. He gave them the blues, a solo rendition of Lightning Hopkins' She's Mine. He added his own suggestive lyrics to it as well, a couple of lines about a woodpecker pecking. Pig was feeling it. He was on stage, picking an acoustic, crooning some dirty old blues to the audience. He had the place in the palm of his hand. This was the shit. This was what Pigpen always wanted. He hit the instrumental break, bringing it down real low, before easing into the last verse. And the protagonist in the narrative of She's Mine leads his blind girlfriend around. He doesn't care what other people say. He's happy with his woman. And Pigpen was happy with his band. His band. Yeah, it was starting to feel like that again. The tunes were starting to feel more like the dead. It wasn't the excess and the self-indulgent music the group had been so focused on. They stripped it back, all the way back, to its roots. The Dead took more than one page from the book that the band and Bob Dylan were using. They emulated any and all music that oozed old-school vibes, from the Civil War right up to the country tunes of the 1950s. They threw it in a blender and then strained the contents through their own unique filter. The music wound up sounding a lot more like the Grateful Dead sound in the early days, and it was right in tune with what was going down. What would later be referred to as Americana was coursing through the Dead's new compositions. The essence of the country they called home was right there in the music. The Grateful Dead just needed to pull back the curtain, and the entire world needed to pull back the curtain. 1970 wasn't just a turning of the decades on the calendar. It was a moment for everyone to catch their collective breath. The dead were catching their breath, too. But while the music transported the band's metaphysical mindset, the harsh realities of their terrestrial situation were inescapable. They were broke. Again. They had just been taken for a ride by someone they had trusted with complete control of their funds. 
Someone that they believed had been acting in their best interest for the past year. Someone who wasn't just a member of the dead's extended family, but a member of their immediate family. Lenny Hart. It all started when Lenny pocketed Jerry's paycheck for his contribution to the Zabriskie Point soundtrack which had arrived at the dead's office. The dead began to connect the dots. Pigpen's organ had been repossessed on stage the year before, and Lenny skimmed money off the top of the band's paychecks to open lines of credit when no bank would have them. Then they found evidence that Lenny had written checks to himself right out of the Grateful Dead's collective income to the tune of $155,000. The band and some of their entourage confronted Lenny in his office. Mickey was distraught. The rest of the band was pissed. Lenny was given a week to get things in order, and then he was told to fuck right off. Lenny did fuck right off, but he put nothing in order. He literally cleared out his office and all the records he had. He took his desk, the filing cabinets, and the rest of the furniture and hightailed it to Mexico. The next time the dead stepped into Lenny's office, there was not a scrap of paper remaining. Mickey always one to read the vibes, decided to step away from the band for a while. He couldn't blame the band for any hard feelings that they'd had towards his father, which they wouldn't be able to help feeling towards him. So he went on sabbatical. By the time he would return to the fold, Pigpen would be dead. The Grateful Dead's funds were exhausted. Not that they had much to begin with, and Pigpen, who had been setting aside some cash each week to build up his own savings and who had trusted Lenny with all of it, was without a net. He didn't spend money, didn't live lavishly. He enjoyed the little things and thought he was being smart with his dough. Now he had nothing, nothing but the music. Pig and the dead had been running on empty for too long, exhausted from living paycheck to paycheck. They were battered, bruised, and left on a dusty road. So for their next record, the Grateful Dead had to simplify the process just as they had simplified their new tunes. No expensive and overly complicated recording studios in New York City or LA. They stayed put in San Francisco and checked in the Pacific High recording studio. Things were noticeably different right from the beginning. Pigpen loved the relaxed setting. In fact, he thrived in it. It wasn't the blues, but thank fucking God it wasn't the tie-dyed space jazz the dead laid down on their first three records. These tunes Pigpen could jive with, and he could actually play them too. But he wasn't only playing, he was contributing. The heartbreaking vocal of Easy Wind, the near spiritual organ and harmonica of the mournful Black Peter, and some good, punchy, chugging honky-tonk keys sprinkled throughout. Pigpen's presence was, for the first time in a long time, felt on a Grateful Dead recording. The sessions were like walking in the sunshine. There was an ease to the process, no exploring the studio for unique sounds, no destruction of equipment or manipulation of instruments, and no Jerry and Phil spending months upon months to fine-tune the mix. The Grateful Dead swaggered through the tracks like a group of soldiers who had just gone through a war. The camaraderie and the trust in one another led to a communal, open working environment in the sound of a band that, while relaxed in sound, was tight in performance. The Dead simply played. And in just under two weeks, they had transferred their sound and their current mental state onto wax. When executive Joe Smith at Warner Brothers heard the opening acoustic strums of the album's first song, Uncle John's Band, he thought someone was playing a joke on him. It sounded like a bunch of hippie cowboys singing a tune about some long-forgotten old-timers around a campfire. It was weary, yet hopeful, rough around the edges, yet direct. 
and the Grateful Dead had managed to pull right off the interstate of overblown acid rock and taken some back road of breezy meditation. They even had something that resembled a hit, too. Working Man's Dead made it all the way to number 27 on the Billboard album charts, got played on FM stations everywhere, and sold exponentially more than anything the group had put out prior. It was a massive risk, but it had paid off. In the process of completely reconfiguring their sound, the Grateful Dead pushed out their finest album yet. And Pigpen, who had been pushed aside when the Dead stepped away from the blues, pushed aside in the studio while the Dead chased a sound they never quite manifest, and pushed aside when Tom Constantine came in to help in that pursuit, had finally found his way back to the center of the band's sound. Pigpen and the Grateful Dead had managed to get their train back on track. Now, it was time to ride that train down the road, and with any luck, leave their troubles behind. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way. Knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. 
thought they were going to kill me. So I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Ron Pigpen McKernan closed his eyes and listened as the wheels of the train clacked loudly against the rail joints. The sound reminded him of the times he spent sitting outside the in-room back in Palo Alto, the beat-up acoustic guitar he played down by the train tracks that ran behind the club, and the rolling rhythm of the locomotive providing a natural backbeat as the warm California breeze ran wildly through his hair. Pig opened his eyes and looked out the window. He was miles from California. He'd logged so many miles and sang so many songs since those early dreams of becoming a bluesman in those more innocent days of Mother McCree's uptown jug champions. Not that Pig minded much. There was something uniquely American about setting out on the open road, and something even more American about hitching a ride on a train and shooting off into the country in parts unknown. Only Pigpen wasn't in America. This was Canada. Eh, close enough. The train whizzed by rolling farms and herds of cattle. Windswept plains for as far as the eye could see. This wasn't your typical airplane, bus, hotel tour. This was a different kind of trip. It suited Pigpen just fine. He took the final drag of his cigarette and flicked it off the back of the train. He pulled a flask from his back pocket, unscrewed it, and brought it to his lips. Empty. Of course it was. Pigpen shook the last drops out of the overturned flask and headed back inside. As soon as he opened the door, everything hit him at once. The smell of booze, the haze of smoke, the sound of music. The train car was full of musicians and their friends, many of which were currently performing a country-fried version of the Dixieland standard, Careless Love. Down at the end of the car, Pigpen watched Janis Joplin and Jerry Garcia harmonize. Janis's voice was raw and ragged. Didn't matter that the tune wasn't one of her traditional blues numbers. Of course she loved country music. Janice had once told Pigpen, after all, that she was from Texas. The wheels turned in Pigpen's head like the wheels of the train rolling along the tracks. The blues, country, bluegrass, folk, R&B. That shit wasn't supposed to be separate. They were all parts of one big sound. That one big sound stretched from the Atlantic to the Pacific. From Janice's home in Texas up to wherever the fuck Canada they were rolling through at the moment. This train wasn't just a joyride through the countryside. It was a rolling circus. And they were calling it the Festival Express. And it had been organized as a moving concert. 
Instead of having hundreds of thousands of kids descend on one location and risk another Altamont, the organizers decided to put the show on wheels and deliver it to the people, one whistle stop at a time. The hope was, up north in Canada, the bands could get a brief respite from the madness unfolding in the United States. Altamont, Manson, shit had gone way dark in the supposed land of the free. The idealism of the 60s had always been there to balance out the violence, but now violence was taking over. This adventure was designed to avoid that mess entirely. It was an intentional break from America. Janice, The Dead, The Band, Buddy Guy, Mountain, The Flying Burrito Brothers, Delaney and Bonnie. The only places they'd even entertained a performance for the moment were north of the border. Pig and The Dead, however, very much played the part of the Americans even if it was a mythic America they were representing. They were clad in Western wear, knives and all, like outlaws in the gold rush. And like cowboys, they were always open to whatever the open road had to offer. The unique format of the tour also allowed the bands ample amount of time to spend together, something they weren't used to. Instead of hanging out backstage for a few hours during the show, the groups would live on top of each other in train cars for a week. The party never stopped. There was a blues car, a folk car, a country car, a rock car. Different jams popped up in every part of the train and the musicians would play with whoever was around. Janis Joplin, for one, sang the praises in the chorus of Chris Christopherson's Me and Bobby McGee. Delaney Bramlett sat down with Jerry Garcia and taught him how to play a song called Going Down the Road Feeling Bad, an old traditional popularized by Woody Guthrie. Soon, both songs would be staples of the Grateful Dead's live show. And the whole thing loosened Pigpen up. Hell, it loosened everybody up, and so did the booze. He spent most of his days in the blues car rubbing shoulders with Buddy Guy and talking music, or firmly positioned in the bar car sipping on Canadian whiskey while Janice dug into her bag of tequila and lemons. Someone had set up an oversized bottle complete with a dispenser on a table in what had been deemed a country car, and it became the Holy Grail. Everyone would drink from it. It was the rest of the dead's first real introduction to alcohol, and everyone was drunk as hell, including Jerry. One evening, Pigpen sat nursing a tall glass of Canadian Club with his feet kicked up and his hat pulled low. He wasn't drunk. Pigpen wasn't ever really drunk in any out-of-control way. He just got, as Jerry put it, more mellow. And now he was mellowing out, listening to Jerry, Bob, Janice, and Rick Danko of the band jam on some old-timey music, and it sounded glorious, uplifting, and joyous. The journey was just under a week, but it rejuvenated Pigpen. His performances on each stop were inspired. He ripped off transcendent harmonica fills and vocals while the dead grooved on new tunes from Working Man's Dead. Pigpen wasn't only enjoying the blues numbers, he was enjoying the new tunes the Grateful Dead were writing. When it came down to it, Pig wasn't ever really interested in rocking the boat, and the dead were never really interested in letting their brother-in-arms go. Pigpen's second chance at the Grateful Dead became a rebirth. The train ride felt like a dream, but Pig was firmly aware that it was indeed a reality. He would have stayed on forever if he could, but the ride wouldn't go on forever, and neither would Pig's.
12 months before the Festival Express got on the tracks, a Bentley took its last turn onto a quiet farm road. The two long hairs up front, one adorned in a smart but stylish suit, and the other in bell bottoms and a choice vest, both sporting several expensive rings, had traveled just over an hour to reach their destination that day. The end had been in sight for months. The two long hairs weren't just a couple of hippies up for a joyride, they were on a mission. And the car pulled to a stop in front of a large red house on a pristine estate. Neither Mick Jagger nor Keith Richards wanted to be where they were, but the job had to be done. They stood at an arduous crossroads. They had watched as the original leader of the Rolling Stones became cooler and colder, fell into a drug-infused haze, and, apart from a few moments of inspiration, disengaged entirely from the music they were creating. Mick and Keith took a long look at each other. They couldn't wait any longer. Minutes later, they were seated in the home of their bandmate, for the time being. They smoked cigarettes as casually as they could, given the circumstances, but as the last bit of tobacco burned away, they knew it was time. Like those cigarettes, their host had reached the end of his rope. He was burned out. He was simply no longer up to the task. He was holding them back. The Stones were set to head out on a tour of the States, but the rap sheet of their host meant he wouldn't be able to join them. And there was only one choice the band could make. Brian, you're out. Brian Jones glanced over at Mick, and then at Keith. He nodded. It's not like he wasn't expecting this news, but fuck, there it was, said out loud. Brian started the Rolling Stones in the first place. He gave them direction. He even chose the bloody fucking name. But the Stones were no longer his to claim. It was crystal clear that his presence in the group and his influence on their music had deteriorated. Brian had always thought of the Stones as a blues group, no more and no less. Like Pigpen, Brian Jones wanted to play the music of his heroes, the music that first inspired him to pick up a harmonica and a guitar, the music that gave him meaning, that made him feel alive, the blues. And also like Pigpen, Brian Jones watched his band slip away right in front of him. But unlike the Grateful Dead, he wasn't able to hang around to see where the band would go next, or if they would ever circle back around to the music he aspired to make. Mick and Keith offered him the terms of his termination, and that was that. Brian let his now former bandmates out of the house, and as the Bentley pulled away from the estate and charted its course back towards London, Brian Jones was left on his own. He walked slowly through his living room and gazed out into the backyard. The sun was shining brilliantly, reflecting off the water of his swimming pool as Brian reflected on what had just happened. During the last eight years, he had formed a band, traveled the world, written hit records, and ran through the excess and madness of the 1960s with his brothers, his friends. The Rolling Stones made some of the greatest albums of all time with Brian as their driving creative force. He was versatile. He played dozens of instruments. His vision and the Stones' ambition helped them ascend to the stars like a rocket. They became household names and left a trail of notoriety that gave them the title of the most dangerous band in the world. They shared a connection that was beyond words. They had lived out their dreams together. And now, for Brian Jones at least, it was all over. In the end, whether it was the fame, the drugs, or the evolution and power struggle of the Rolling Stones themselves, Brian Jones just couldn't handle it. Less than a month later, his lifeless body would be pulled from the bottom of his swimming pool, and they found traces of sleeping pills and copious amounts of alcohol present in his bloodstream. 
A night that had begun with him and his girlfriend hosting friends had ended in what was deemed, quote-unquote, death by misadventure. Misadventure. That might have been the title of Brian's life story. Pigpen's story, in many ways, ran parallel to Brian's story. Both were obsessed with the blues. Both started a band that originally had played blues music. Both watched as their bands changed with the times, incorporating new influences that increasingly marginalized their input into the overall sound. And just like the bluesmen that they both held as a chief influence, Robert Johnson, both Brian Jones and Ron Pigpen McKernan would be dead at the age of 27. But before Pigpen's soul left the earth, he would have to swallow the difficult news of the death of a close friend whose soul would also descend from this planet at the same ominous and foreboding number. 27. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club. The 27 Club is hosted and produced by me, Jake Brennan, for Double Elvis in partnership with iHeartRadio. Seth Lundy is the lead writer and co-producer. This episode was mixed by Joel Edinburgh. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker and Henry Lunetta. This episode was written by Ted Omo. Story and copy editing by Pat Healy. Sources for this episode are available at doubleelvis.com on the 27 Club series page. Talk to me on social at Disgraceland Pod and hang out with me live on my Twitch channel, Disgraceland Talks. For more news on your favorite podcast, follow at Double Elvis on Instagram. Rockarola. What's up for your ears? Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis, mm-hmm. back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-course, and then mm-hmm. a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Pitbull. I think that education is the real revolution because as much as we speak about all the problems that there is in society and the world today, my mother's always told me, son, don't worry, the world's always been coming to an end. Don't let it scare you out of living. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.